Welcome to the official ABA Law Student Podcast, where we talk about issues that affect law students and recent grads. From finals and graduation to the bar exam and finding a job, this show is your trusted resource for the next big step. You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Legal Talk Network. And this is the ABA's Law Student Podcast. I am your host, Demario Thornton. I'm a 3L at Southern University Law Center in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. You heard that right, 3L. That means I'm almost out of here, okay? But in my spare time, I like to do this podcast. So we have an exciting episode for you today. So today we have Michael Nava. He is an attorney. He's a writer. He's worked on the staff for the California Supreme Court and ran for the Superior Court position in 2010. He is the author of the Henry Rios book series. It's a 10-volume mystery. It's about an openly gay protagonist who is a criminal defense lawyer. So his novels have received multiple awards. He has received multiple awards, and he is one of the leading activists in the Latinx community. So ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, please welcome Mr. Michael Nava. How are you today? I'm great. Nice to see you, Demario. Nice to see you as well. So if you could just give us a little background. How did you get to this point today? I'm a third generation Californian. Um, my great grandparents came up from Mexico in the 1920s to escape the Mexican Revolution. So they were refugees. I am the first person in my family to go to college and to have any kind of higher education. My family is blue collar Mexican-American. I got a scholarship to a little school called Colorado College where I did my undergraduate work. Uh, I got my law degree at Stanford. And I've started writing when I was a teenager. So I've, you know, that's been a long time interest of mine. After I graduated from law school, I moved to LA where I was a prosecutor for a while. Uh, Then I was briefly in private practice before I went to go work uh, as a research attorney at the California Court of Appeal, where I worked for a judge named Arlie Woods, who was the first African-American woman appointed to the California Court of Appeal. When she retired, I moved up to to San Francisco, and I worked at the California Supreme Court, where, among other things, I uh, was a research attorney for Justice Carlos Moreno, who was only the third Latino ever appointed at the California Supreme Court. So I've spent my life, my legal career as an appellate attorney working mostly at the courts. And I also wrote a series of these novels, the Rios novels. The protagonist is, as you say, he's a gay Mexican-American criminal defense lawyer. And uh, yeah, uh, the first one was published long before you were born, DeMario, (laughs) in 1986. Well, it wasn't long before. It was only two years before. (laughs) Okay, but you you couldn't have read it. (laughs) (laughs) I could not have read it. You are correct. You are correct. And the most recent one came out just last year. Okay. So I pursued both uh, writing and law, and and they, they in fact, complemented each other because, you know, they're often involved the same themes of marginalization and and, um, just how people of color and... LGBTQ people navigate a world in which 
they are not only a minority, but frequently the object of discrimination. And I definitely understand. Yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) So I just want to tell you, Michael, that the work that you've done is so ahead of your time. Like, I just want to know, already coming into the legal profession, being a Mexican-American, you're already a minority. But then to actually be comfortable enough to be an out gay man, was that ever a struggle for you or it was something that you were just like, this is me and I'm just going to go with the flow? Well, you know, I've been out since I was 17. And of course, you know, being out is a relative thing because not out of any sense of shame about being gay, but just for my own safety, (laughs) there were some situations in which, you know, I did not come out. For example, when I was uh, when I was prosecuting cases in Los Angeles, most of my witnesses and investigators were members of the LAPD, and yeah, I didn't come out to them because uh, you know LAPD then and now was a pretty militaristic uh, and homophobic and racist institution. So just for my own safety and to um, uh, maintain a professional um, relationship with them. I kept my personal stuff out. But at every job I've had as a lawyer, I came out. It was very important to me that my employers know I was gay um, just because it was already stressful enough being a lawyer in this, those situations without having to carry around, you know, a secret. And I also, I didn't want to work for people for whom that would be a problem. So, yeah, I've always been out on the job. Okay. I definitely understand that. So do you believe that it was harder being a first-generation law student or being a minority law student? Well, I definitely think that being a person of color was was more difficult, although, you know, I mean, when you look at me, I can, obviously, I can pass for white. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I don't have the classic Mexican features. So a lot of my classmates didn't understand, and they didn't know Nava was a Spanish last name. In fact, one of my Jewish law school friends, when she heard my last name, she said, oh, Nava, Nava, what was it before it was shortened? You know, and I had to explain to her, you know, I didn't come in through Ellis Island and it wasn't shortened. But, I mean, in and of itself, that was a kind of erasure, right? Because I was surrounded by, uh, at Stanford, mostly overwhelmingly white student population who weren't necessarily even aware that there were people among their midst who weren't white, uh, except for the handful of African-American students we had. I mean, obviously, they were minority students. And in this essay I wrote for uh, the ABA Student Magazine, I point out the time I was sitting in the um, courtyard at Stanford and two of my white classmates were talking about minority students and one of them said to the other one, oh, they're all affirmative action admits. So I think that was also a prevailing attitude is that those of us who were students of color had had come in, were, were in some ways intellectually inferior and had been admitted for political reasons, not because of our um, ability. Yeah, I was actually going to um, bring up your essay, but since you brought it up, I'm ready to get into it. So yeah, yeah, let's talk about that. <laughs> so you wrote an essay um, entitled, I Wish I'd Known. And basically, the essay talks about 
Um, a specific instance, which I'm probably I'm sure you've had more than one of these instances, but a specific instance where you overheard two uh, white uh, counterparts in law school and they basically discounted why you were there. And I just want to say to you before I uh, read your bio, before anything, I read this essay and I have had this exact same experience. So I am a 3L in law school. I've summered at um, some of the top law firms in the country. And my experience is I was number one in my class my first year. And when I got to these law firms, I genuinely felt that people thought that I was some type of lottery ticket, some type of... um, I guess, token where I wasn't as qualified as them. However, because I am black and I check off a certain box, I was given just given this opportunity. Tell me more about that. Yeah, I think that's the preconception that we all labor under. And uh, it's infuriating, really. But that is the very definition of white supremacy, right? And, you know, we think of white supremacy in terms of sort of these these MAGA Trumpers who are openly racist and disparaging um, of people of color. Um, but actually, it permeates the entire establishment, including the legal establishment. And these firms you're talking about where these people, these uh, these white attorneys would undoubtedly you might call think of themselves as being progressive people politically, they are also infected because when a white partner at a big law firm sees a black summer associate, at some level in their heads, they're thinking, oh, I know why we got I know why we have her here. You know, <laughs> we need a little color in the office. That's kind of be the first thing they think about rather than um if they see a white summer associate, they're obviously not going to, there's going to be no question in their mind about the qualifications of that person to be there. But if they see a, a black summer associate or an associate with a Latino last name, they're going to think at some level that we're there to fulfill some sort of diversity quota, not because we deserve to be there. And part of my essay was about, yeah, we sure as hell deserve to be there. But, um, you know, this is, one of the currents we have to fight is these preconceptions. So I have a great response to that, but we are going to take a quick break and pay for this podcast. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. This episode is brought to you by the American Bar Association's Law Student Division. It's never too early to start exploring potential practice areas and building your network in the field. The Law Student Division provides students like you with resources and experiences aimed at helping them succeed in law school and prepare for what's next. 
Claim your full law student membership for just $25 by visiting ambar.org slash join. All right, so we are back with Mr. Michael Nava, and we're discussing his essay um, entitled, I Wish I'd Known. And he made an excellent point about um, the qualifications and being a minority in white spaces in the legal profession. And I actually want to say to you that sometimes while they think that we are just checking off boxes, we have to be almost more than qualified just to even be in these spaces. And it it's almost an internal, I guess, like, I'm always beating myself up. It's like, I can never relax. I always have to be on because I am being watched at all times. And I have to be at a certain threshold just to exist in these spaces. Well, it's not simply that you're being watched, Mario. It's also that you're being evaluated in a way that your white counterparts aren't being evaluated. I mean, I'm not saying that this is universally true. And certainly... I've been mentored by, you know, white lawyers and some of my closest friends have been my white colleagues. So I'm not making a general statement about white people, but I am saying that as you know and I know that frequently white people in our legal in the legal profession will look at us and they will assume without knowing anything about us that we're less qualified than um, our white counterparts. And so when they evaluate us, they're already assuming, well, that, well you can't you can't do the job. And so, yeah, we do internalize that. I mean, that's, you know, internalized racism. And it's a poison that we're all infected with. And a lot of us suffer from uh, what's called the imposter syndrome, where, you know, we're constantly having, we're doubting ourselves, we're doubting our abilities. And, uh, you know, we're, we're fearful of making mistakes, mistakes that our white counterparts make without a second thought. Because when we make mistakes, it may have more serious consequences. You know, um, it sort of confirms the bias that people already have that we can't do the job. So I totally understand where you're coming from. And I've, I've mentored law students of color and undergrads of color, many of them like me, first generation uh, in college and law school. And this is a constant, this, this sort of lack of self-confidence is a constant. And I encourage them, I say, look, whatever people may think of you, you know you're here because you deserve to be here. And that's what you got to hang on to. And you got to find a community that will support you in, in that belief. And speaking of support, I have actually experience the entire spectrum. I worked at a firm that I truly believe valued my differences and wanted to include me into their tribe. And they wanted to know my just my background. They wanted to understand me. And, and I definitely believe that was inclusive. While on the other spectrum, I worked at a firm where I did check a box. And because I checked the box, there was no inclusion whatsoever. But like you said, there are valuable parts of this profession because I attend a historically black college and university and I believe that my institution really boosts my confidence in classes and it's an incubator in order for me to go out and handle these situations. 
the work that you're doing with uh, mentoring, do you believe that that's important to boost their self-esteem so that when they do interact with these things, they will be prepared? It's absolutely vital. And I know that the, um, the Mexican-American Bar Association here in San Francisco, they have a mentoring program where they connect law students with practicing lawyers because, again, because so, so many of us are first-generation I mean, I didn't meet any lawyers until I went to law school. I'm my law school professors. So it's very important to see people who are, are succeeding, have already succeeding at the thing you want to do, and who can talk to you about um, these extra uh, burdens that we have to deal with. And people to whom you can be honest, because like you're saying, Mario, I mean, often, you know, we have to put on a certain face when we're in these white spaces and we can't really let our vulnerabilities show. And so we need someone that we can just vent with and just say, you know, that was, what's with these people? Yeah. And uh, someone who's been through it and who can sort of help us understand what those spaces are about and how to navigate them. So mentorship is absolutely crucial. Do you um, have a feeling, I guess, since you exist in the legal profession, do you have a feeling that you are changing the profession for the better, or do you feel that you've just become part of the status quo? Well, that's a very insightful question. <laughs> and I think the answer is yes and yes. <laughs> for example, you know, I spent the last uh, 19 years of my legal career working at the California Supreme Court. And the California Supreme Court has a huge staff of lawyers. And there are at least a hundred of us working for the justices and working for various specialized staffs. And there were, I think, maybe two black lawyers. And I think there were maybe three Latinx lawyers. <laughs> and this is at the highest court in California that's making decisions that are impacting the lives of Californians, which is a you know, California is a, a state in which white people are no longer a majority. So I think just by being there, by being a visible member of the Latino community, and by being a lawyer who was obviously competent and respected by his peers, that that does have some impact on people when they think about issues that affect uh, the Latino community. You know, you can't stay wedded to your your stereotypes and biases about black people or Latino people if one of them is sitting next to you in your office and doing the same work you are and doing it well. So yeah. I do think that just by our presence um, and our professionalism that we do change the perceptions of those who are in our immediate uh, vicinity. But it's true, the system also, uh, we become part of the system. And uh, it is a system that has some real problems when it comes to the communities from that we come from. Coming into law school, my sole purpose was to be a public defender. That's what I wanted to be. That's what I wanted to do. You could not speak to me about any other type of law. Matter of fact, I just wanted to take criminal law every semester, and that was that. 
after working at my first summer firm, I was like, okay, um, I think I might need the resources. And I think that I really like this uh, civil litigation route. But the struggle, the internal struggle that I was having was, am I being a sellout for not working in the um, public interest arena and just by working in like the corporate world? Do you feel that's normal? <laughs> I know that's normal. And, you know, that's part of the kind of um, internalized doubt that we have about ourselves that so many of us feel that it's a binary choice. We're either working in public interest or we're selling out. But that's not true. You should absolutely be a partner at a big firm because we need to be everywhere because that's, this is this, you know, for better or worse, this is the system that we're entering where much of the power and the influence of the legal profession is in those firms. And we need to be there. We don't all need to go into public service or become public defenders. You know, we need to be partners at big law firms. Uh, we need to be, like me, working behind the scenes at the courts. We need to be everywhere. And you should feel absolutely no guilt about that. And also, I will say, in terms of building a resume, it is valuable for us to to do more than one thing. I mean, I was in private practice for a couple of years. I was a prosecutor for a few years. Um, and then I, I worked at the courts. I also briefly did some um, criminal defense work as an appellate lawyer. So the more varied experiences you have, the more credible you are as a lawyer. And you should, uh, you should end up on the federal bench you know? <laughs> because we really need, we need judges too. So no, absolutely. I mean, I understand the conflict, but you should go where your interests take you, and and um, not feel any uh, not feel any shame about making those. There are lots of people want to be PDs. So good deal, good deal. Well, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back for some final thoughts with Mister Nava. All right, we are back with. The novelist, Mr. Nava. <laughs> have you heard that before? Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, of, course, of course you have. All right, Michael so, Novel. <laughs> so some final thoughts. I just want to know, I believe watching the news and um, watching this entire political theater <laughs> that we uh, see on a daily, sometimes we can become distracted. Do you feel like it's getting better um, with the diversity and the way people are thinking in the profession, or it's just a rat race? That's another difficult question to ask. You know, I would say, because, you know, I'm an old man now, I'm, I'm going to turn 68 this, this month, but when I passed the bar in 81, there was not even much discussion about diversity. It was just assumed that the legal profession was a profession dominated by straight white guys. So what I've seen is a greater and growing sensitivity to the need to diversify the profession, not for some reason of political correctness, but just because the demographics of our population are changing, right? And it just looks bad 
when you have a profession dominated by straight white guys and the population is increasingly a population of color in this country. So I would say it's better in the sense that there is greater consciousness and awareness and that there are some serious initiatives. But I will also say it hasn't changed that much. I mean, California, where I live, the profession is still over 80% white. Uh, the judiciary is still, you know, over 80% white. And so the consciousness has changed, but the actual concrete changes have been very slow and incremental. Well, Mr. Nava, I want to thank you so much for this in-depth conversation, this discussion. Where can people find you on social media? I'm not on social media. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, if people want to find you or find your works... So you can find my work just by Googling Michael Nava, and I'll come up all over the place. And you can reach me through, I do have a website, michaelnavarider.com. Um, or honestly, if, any, if anyone listening to this program, any um, law student or young lawyer wants to talk to me, email me. My, um, my email address is michaelangelnava, one word, at gmail.com. I'm happy to talk to anyone about these issues. Well, I want to thank you so much, Michael, for joining us. And I want to thank the listeners for joining us. If you just happen to stumble upon our podcast, make sure to follow, rate, and review. And we hope that you come back next month as we will have another exciting conversation with someone else. So thanks again, and we'll see you next time. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. Remember, U.S. law students at ABA-accredited schools can join the ABA for free. Join now at AmericanBar.org forward slash law student. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.